people are facing big mental health issues. There's differences between men and women and the rates of mental health issues in men are quite significant. Society's doing a lot to uplift women and I, I think that's a good thing. But what's not a good thing is they're doing a lot to push men down. As a man maybe shouldn't feel upset, shouldn't feel sad, shouldn't feel anxious. That's a massive conflict. We just don't talk about this stuff. The men, they're not going to therapy, they're not seeking help. The only way to be a truly a masculine man is to really take full responsibility for what you're dealing with. Okay, psychedelics are intimately connected with the therapeutic process. You just get a massive download of insights. Psychedelics for mental health will be the greatest innovation in medicine in our time. Then anybody who's committed to doing anything can make it happen. It all comes down to you, owning yourself, owning your life, and owning what you create. You're a man living in the modern world in a time when men and manhood are not what they once were. You live life on your own terms. You're self-sufficient. You think for yourself and you march to the beat of your own drum. When life knocks you down, you get back up because in your gut, you know that's what men do. You're a badass and a warrior. And on the days when you forget, we are here to remind you who you really are. Welcome to the Sovereign Man Podcast, where we make men masculine again. I'm your man, Nikki Ballou, and we have fantastic guests lined up for you today. Dr. Evan Lewis is a man who has spent a lot of time working in the arena of mental health, and he understands the issues of mental health that a lot of men deal with, and I'm very excited to have him here and to have this fantastic conversation that he and I have planned with you. Welcome to the show, Evan. Thanks, Nikki. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Great to have you. So, brother, um, we all know the stats. Uh, men in particular, although all people, are facing big mental health issues. The number of men who commit suicide uh, you know, compared to the number of women is, is, is there's four to six, depending on which studies you read, as many men commit suicide as women. Um, there's far more men who drop out of jobs, drop out of the workplace than do women. And, uh, I could go on and on and on. So I wanted to ask you as our expert today, give us the lay of the land. What's the scope of the problem that men are facing? And what are some of your thoughts as to why they're facing these issues? Yeah, sure. I, I think first I got to offer a bit of a disclaimer and a qualifier here just to give some context to the audience. Um, that uh, So I'm a, I'm a neurologist by training a, a pediatric neurologist, in fact, but I do work with many, many adults uh, and an epilepsy specialist by training. And um, But I also have expertise in concussion and headache. And, um, you know, mental health issues and neurological issues come hand in hand. So you're absolutely right. Over my time as a, a neurologist and spending time with both kids and adults, uh, you can't help but to be exposed to the mental health issues. And I think in any field of medicine, you will be exposed to uh, mental health issues, especially if you're open and, and, and attending to it as a physician. Because as you just mentioned, you know, this is uh, we, we've got an increasing number of mental health concerns and disorders in, in our population, especially the westernized population. Um, and and so you, you see it, you see it in kind of everything. So, you know, there are there's differences between men and women and the rates of mental health issues in men are quite significant. Um, as you mentioned, suicide, that's a big that's a big issue. So if you look at CAMH and some of the stats that they produce, uh, that's the Canadian Association for Mental Health. Um, you know, they've they've published that four of kind of every five suicides are, are men. Four out of every five suicides are men. That's staggering, man. It is staggering. So, so the difference is that men are much more likely to fulfill uh, an attempted suicide or a suicide, whereas attempted suicides um, between men and women are a bit more equivalent. So that's the big difference there. That's why you know far of every completed suicides are are men. Wow. Um, that's a big one. And then another really interesting um, you know statistic, and this is kind of a new finding, is that. You know, things like postpartum depression has been shown to be exist in men, which is, you know, there's a lot of stress that men go through after having a baby uh, or, or after having a baby through with the family. And so that's an issue there. Uh, another big issue as well is when you kind of survey, um, you know, mental health and well-being, we think there's a big discrepancy between men and women, but actually the stats are similar. 10% of men experience 
symptoms of mental health disorders and substance dependencies, as do women at 11%. So, you know, we, we kind of are, are maybe the focus, um, you know, really needs to shed light on both uh, genders. And CAMH has called it, quote, a silent crisis that is developing men's mental health issue. And the main, main, main driver there is that men just don't tend to recognize their mental health issues. And that's been found in kind of a few uh, references in a few articles as well. So men can feel depression, but not recognize that they have depression. Men can feel anxiety, not recognize they have anxiety. So it comes out in different ways. Comes out as aggressive behavior, comes out of physical manifestations, and comes out of headache, neurologic symptoms. These are some of the things that I see in my practice. Wow. So let's let's get into the whole question of suicide. So you're saying that men follow through on this more. Why do you think that is? Why is it that men are killing themselves at four to five times the rate of women? Yeah, well, that's it's a staggering statistic and one that is um, ongoing. You know, there's ongoing exploration as to why this is the case. Why is it that you know men are more quote committed to fulfilling the suicide um, than females? Um, there's a couple of thoughts, you know, that I've got. But again, I've, I've not done any, any research on it, per se, other than reading some, some findings like yourself. But um, we're living in a time where our society is actually not really respecting men very much, right? Men are being called bad and wrong and phrases like toxic masculinity, which is the most misandrous and vile anti-man sexist phrase there is, are making men feel bad about being men. There was a time where being a man was a good thing and, and certain virtues that men had, you know, were, were extolled. And right now in society, that's not being done. A lot of guys are feeling lost. A lot of guys, especially younger guys, don't really understand what it is to be a man. And they're being getting all these messages from society at large. And, and uh, they're, they're being put under a lot of pressure. Uh, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. You know, clearly in the mainstream, it- if if you're a man and you are suffering from any you know mental health condition, you're going to be much more attuned to that as well. Um, I think that's going to come out, and it's going to um, to some degree, right, invalidate your experience. Um, you know, like you as a man maybe shouldn't feel upset, shouldn't feel sad, shouldn't feel anxious, and therefore when that's a massive conflict. If you're on Instagram or you know and on social media and you're reading all this stuff, but you're feeling something different, that you know, discrepancy, as we, you know, we can probably imagine makes things worse. Um, and so maybe one thing to, you know, consider about uh, the ultimate, you know, uh, act of, of, of really trying to eliminate your mental health issue, i.e. commit suicide, maybe it comes to a point why men are much more successful. Maybe men are a lot more, quote, sick by the time they get to that point. Um, and, and because they've just ignored a lot of what they're experiencing, uh, for many reasons. And one reason it may be because of, you know, uh, what they're reading in the mainstream or what they're, they're seeing on the news or seeing on TV. And, um, that, that can really cause a a massive disparity in your own thinking. Society's kind of, uh, anti-man messages today, society's misandry. I mean, it's okay to be sexist against men. People make men the butt of jokes. You know what I mean? There has been there hasn't been a sitcom in which men have been uh, portrayed anything other than as a bumbling fool in a, in a really long time. Um, all that sort of thing, I think, is having an effect on men. Society's doing a lot to uplift women, and I, th- I think that's a good thing. But what's not a good thing is they're doing a lot to push men down, and I think that's has a lot to do with many of the mental health issues that men are, face, are facing today. Yeah, well, you know, one of the biggest uh, one of one of the risk factors for suicide. Well, you know, let's talk about a horrible divorce. Um, When I was going through my divorce in the early stages, it was absolutely horrible and horrendous. Mm -hmm. And um, I had moments where I thought, this is horrible. I I don't know if I want to live. I I didn't act on it, obviously, but it was definitely a thought that came through my head. And I've spoken Mm -hmm. to a lot of other men who've gone through the process and they've said the same thing. And I know of some men who've committed suicide because of a horrible divorce that they had not being able to see their children and all, and all of that. So I'm, I'm wondering, if in your practice, do you come across folks who share those kinds of details with you? Yeah, no, I absolutely, absolutely. And, and again, right, because as being a neurologist, um, I see that um, in the context of significant stressors. 
So I will see divorces, uh, you know, ha having a child with a significant neurological disorder, um, as one can imagine, results in extreme stressors between the couple, and that is a big risk factor for divorce. Not only risk for divorce, it's a big risk factor for really bad divorces. We didn't have a neurological issue, but my kid had an issue. It was a big factor in causing our divorce, is that he almost died. Yeah, if, if your child is unwell, can, I mean, it's hard enough to raise a kid between two people, right? Uh, you know, to have a child and other children, um, you know, one or more who are affected by any kind of disorder or disease, um, you know, the, the stress there is enormous. And especially if parents have differing views regarding the, the care and, and direction of, of health care their child should take, wow. Like, like, it's just, it gives me shivers to think about this when I, when I, I, I think about it on my own, but then I see this in, in the families that I work with. Um, and yeah, so then I end up seeing, um, you know, divorces, separations uh, that are triggered by that or kind of, or parent or parents, families come to me where they're already separated because of these issues. Um, the amount of, of stress um, on the individual is huge and the amount of stress in men, again, because we just don't talk about this stuff. Um, and, and, you know, by the time I see these people, you know, the women tend to have already gone to therapy and have dealt with it. The men, as I see, again, this is very anecdotal from my perspective, they're not doing that. They're not going to therapy. They're not seeking help. Um, and this is where, yeah, this is where you run into, you know, just dealing with it on your own and trying to you know, navigate this. And the more you do that on your own, the more invalidating your own experience becomes and the worse your mental health condition can become. And yeah, that's, see, a, that's, you want to illuminate something in men. That's, that's something to illuminate right there. Yeah, we just no, don't exactly. talk about this stuff amongst each other. Exactly. Yeah. You know, that's a good point. I mean, it's a good distinction to draw. I mean, when women are dealing with any issue that's stressful for them, they go to their girlfriends and they start to kind of emote and talk it out. They're really good at that and, and helping them deal and process their, their experts are processing their emotions. Right. And they're really good at getting together with friends to do that. Men used to do that, but they don't really do that much. anymore. one of the reasons I started the sovereign man podcast and the sovereign man movement was to have men have a place where they could go and, and be with their men. And these aren't just men that you could go have a beer with or whatever, and talk about the ball game or chicks. These are men you could have serious, real conversations with, like, you know, my kid's sick and my wife and I are fighting and I think we're going to get a divorce. What should I do? You know what I mean? These are the kinds of things that got to happen. So, you know, how do you think men who are not dealing with these issues, not going to therapy, not part of a group, what would be your advice to them? What should they do so they don't become a statistic? The first off, the answer is talk. I mean, you can jump the jump the gun and say go to therapy, but I mean, you're you're talking about a massive leap. If you're if you're a man as a man, if you're going through this and you're not even having a conversation with your best friend about this, there's no no chance in hell you're heading to therapy anytime soon. So, I guess my my you know one thing I would say, and and this is more on a personal level, but also I've seen this be quite successful in other people is. Um, most most men have one at least one reliable friend that they that they can trust so the key there would be to link and connect with that friend and have a scheduled repeatable conversation um, once a week start there every tuesday night set a time 7 p.m set it aside schedule it you got an hour and a half go on a zoom call with your buddy and just talk and don't make, don't, don't think about what you're talking about, what you're just talk. And because, you know, um, Jordan Peterson has said this, he says, you know, one of the best things I've ever done in therapy is if you just listen to um, a patient or an individual or a client talk, they'll eventually tell you exactly what you want to know. So this is it, right? So reverse that as an individual who's struggling with something, if you just start talking, 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 you're eventually going to articulate what it is you're actually feeling. And then maybe that will be, as that comes out of your mouth, maybe that will be like a, oh, there, there's something, there's something that I'm struggling with. And then if you've got somebody who really cares about you, a buddy, a good friend who's listening to you, they're going to ask you some more questions about that. And then you can dig into things. And that's the start. That's, that's, that's the little chink in the armor to get through that hard dead wood and to start the therapeutic process. You could at least start there. You know, I really like what you're saying, and I wholeheartedly agree with you. You've got to have at least one man in your life who you yeah. can trust to have conversations with, even if, you know, these are conversations that you don't normally have. The fact that that man can sit there and just listen to you and feed stuff back to you is going to just 
allow you to get crap off your chest. And that that's something so many men don't do. They don't get crap off their chest. It just stays with them and weighs them down. That's a big difference between men and women. Women get things off their chest quick, right? And mm-hmm. men just, and they're just sinking lower and lower into the muck. And if you're feeling stressed out and your, your, your lady's noticing this, that's going to have stress put on your relationship with her because she's going to want to talk to you. And if you're not good at talking with your friends, you're sure as heck aren't going to be good at talking with your lady. And you're going to mess up your relationship that way too, right? If anything, you're going to um, project onto your your female partner in that sense, right? You'll you'll start to create stories in your mind that they just don't get you. They don't understand you. And it's them, 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 when really you're just, you're not saying anything about how you feel. And, and that's such an important, important point. We do that so much. We love humans. We love, love, love to project and judge because that takes the onus of the responsibility of our own, um, you know, our, our own, I would say, kind of um, uh, just uneasiness. It takes it away from us and gives it onto something else and projects it outwards into the external environment. And that's the blame and the resentment. And that's a really slippery slope. You go there and all you've got inside your own head is ping ponging back and forth negative feelings. You're going to do that more and more and more and more and more. Um, it's not a good place to be. It's definitely not. A good it's place. not. I mean, and all human beings do that. But I, I can tell you I, what you're saying. I, I, I'm thinking back to my marriage and mm-hmm. I projected a lot of crap onto my wife. You know, yeah. I did. Now, she did onto me, too. That's a, that's a, that's another discussion for another time. But I sure <laughs> as heck did it to her. And um, I've even done it in my current relationship. That's one of the things that I got to just watch out for because it's it, I have a tendency as a man to like not want to take responsibility sometimes. I'm not saying all men have this, but I've had this tendency. And the only way to be truly a masculine man is to really take full responsibility for what you're dealing with. And that means you can't project on your wife. But yeah, so not being able to talk to a friend means you can't talk to wife. So what are some other things men can do to deal with these types of mental health issues, deal with stuff that's on their chest? Yeah, um, I think the other piece is more kind of internal work, right? There's a lot of things we can do on our own. Again, very difficult to do if you're in a real stuck place, right? Um, and so one obvious thing is is maybe it's not jumping to therapy or you know right away, but at least have a discussion with someone who there now is the opposite of your friend, something who someone who is objective and a professional. Maybe it's your family doctor. Maybe it's, you know, some, somebody who you could connect to who is then the objective type, like purely objective type of individual to maybe give you a better perspective because you don't have that perspective. And then, you know, someone you trust who has that back, that background, the authority, um, who can give you a little bit of insight there. And so that, that's kind of like, I would say, number two would be important. Again, a difficult thing to do if you don't even recognize you're there. But if you're just feeling uneasy and that's persisting, you know, for a bit of time, that should be a, a yellow orangey flag to yourself that things are yellow starting to run right. Flag. Yeah, right. Like you're not going to say red because if it's a red flag, then you're going in and you're seeking help, right? So it's like, don't wait till you get a red flag. Once you're in red flag territory, you're stuck way deep in that muck that you just you just refer to. Now, what do you do? And now you're either you know getting into substances to make you not experience that muck. Right. And that's a significant uh, factor within men. Men are much more likely to have substance dependencies. Right. Um, or you're going to the doctor and you're not really saying what's wrong. You're saying how crappy your life is. And, you're, and, and you know, if you don't have like the greatest physician or or, you know, what are you getting? Well, you're getting an antidepressant or anti-anxiety. And now you're on that thing, hoping it's going to change your life. And that is definitely not going to change your life. It might make you feel a little bit better, but it's not going to get you out of that muck. No, it's um, like a band-aid. You know, so like right. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it, it might unstick you out of the muck, and then give you that little bit of ability to climb out of that hole that you you're in. But you need to make the effort to get out of that hole. So you know that's where medicines are important. Medicines are good catalysts to get you out of that hole. I got to be honest. I'm gonna push back a little bit. I'm not sure I agree with that. I think there people are way too. Uh, prone to subscribe medicine. I, I don't think medicine should be a first resort. Way too many guys go to docs and the doctor go, okay, here's the medicine. 
and they haven't done other things. They haven't really tried other things like the conversations you're talking about, like having a band of brothers to go talk to regularly and work on this, like doing the deep inner work. Now, if you've done all that and that's not making a difference, then maybe that's something to consider at that point in time to say, yeah, I got to I got to go get some medical help. But it, it's I think it's dangerous. Like I've had a friend who has gone on these uh, on these medications and he's he's been somebody I, I love him dearly. He's a great man. He's been somebody who's really been very private about his issues. He hasn't shared them with people very much. He and I've had a few conversations and he shared them with me. But one day he was he was just really happy uh, for a while. And I was just thinking, this this is not this guy. He's not normally really happy and he's not telling me he's done anything. And then he finally confessed. He was taking, I don't know, was it Prozac or Zoloft or something like that? And he said, oh my God, it's amazing. I feel great now all the time. And I just thought to myself, for him to get dependent on that, rather than do the deep inner work to get rid of the crap that he's dealing with, was not healthy. And I tried to have a discussion with him about that, but he didn't want to hear it. He didn't even want to talk about yeah. it. It was just, yeah. bye-bye. You know? So we're not saying we're not saying different things. I actually was that that's what I was that I was saying, right? Um, is that um, you know, the there's no way a medication is going to change your, your circumstances. Right. Um, the medication will just give you that edge or ability to thus then change your circumstances. Nothing in medicine should be in isolation. Nothing, nothing, not even therapy should be in isolation. Uh, there's a wholeness to us and, and, and that wholeness needs to be addressed in many different ways. And, um, you know, there are situations where people are stuck so deep in that muck. You, you can idealize all you want to think that that individual is going to uh, get outside of their house and go walk for five minutes, they won't. They won't. And they're just too deep. Listen, this is why suicide happens. You're not far from it when you're there. So you're asking why suicide happens. Well, you know, there you go. So this is where these things need to be addressed again in their wholeness. It needs to, the approach to mental health is not just medicine. It's not just taking responsibility and doing deep inner work. Some people aren't capable of that unless you're capable of that. Um, it's, it's, a, it's someone who needs a lens on these individuals to be able to address everything, the physical, the mental, deep inner work, the meditation, the understanding, the education, all of this needs to be, you know, come together. And that's where I was going to say that bleeds into my third point. If you're going to ask what's another thing men can do. And I was going to say, take responsibility. That's number three. And, my, right? and, and that's the umbrella for all of it, to be honest, but like taking responsibility for where you're at. It doesn't matter how you got there. Doesn't matter. The most horrible things can happen to you, and you know what? You know, as a doctor, for me to be sympathetic to somebody is not helpful. I need to empathize with that person, understand their situation. But in the end, that person's situation is only going to change if they elect or choose to change. And you only elect or choose yeah. to change if you take responsibility to change. Um, that's the most important part that any man can do. And taking responsibility is maybe utilizing a medication as necessary in the appropriate proper way with a clear plan and an endpoint, And that might be the case. Um, and this is where it comes down to why psychedelics are so important um, and why they might be a game changer for mental health for all individuals, especially including men. Well, yeah, I, I, I appreciate what you're saying there. But I think the point of taking responsibility is very important and very, very powerful because mm -hmm we live in a time where men are not encouraged to be men and take responsibility that way. There was a time where being a man meant you're responsible. You took responsibility. No one had to tell you to take responsibility. You just did that. It was what men did. Yeah. And, and in my opinion, it's what men do and what men should do. And, and so for a man who says, Oh, I'm a victim and goes into that headspace, he's given away his power as a man. And as a man, you, you can't look at yourself as a victim, looking at yourself as a victim is the surest path to becoming a cuck beta male who's going to lose in life and not be able to deal with any of the issues that he's dealing with. So I got to be honest, I am, uh, you know, a, a psychedelic skeptic. So this is going to be an interesting conversation that you and I are going to have. I've never done any, any drugs in my life. I've never even had a drink of alcohol personally. I, I think that those things are, are not good to do. I think a man's got to be able to have full control of his faculties. It's one of the reasons I've never done any of that stuff. But I realize that there's a burgeoning field of 
folks dealing with issues with psychedelics. So I've been curious. That's why I wanted to have you on the show. So yeah. how do you think this can help address this for men? Yeah. First, the context is important because you're, the, the psychedelic therapeutic model is not the traditional model that we're all used to. And there's a massive misconception out there right now. The traditional model, especially in westernized medicine, is come see your doctor, take this pill, and see you later, right? This is not how psychedelics work, okay? Psychedelics are intimately connected with the therapeutic process. So how are they being studied now? This is not new. This started in the 50s, progressed well into the 60s, and was shut down by Richard Nixon, and was, you know, there was a gradual progress to this, but shut down in, in 1970 um, with, uh, with, with all other substances, and they were deemed to have zero medical properties. You go back and read the literature from the 50s and 60s, it'll blow your mind how much work was already done. We are essentially repeating, updating, and making the work that was already done in the 50s, 60s better now and expanding upon it. Um, it was basically shut down for decades. However, an underground work was continued because people who really understood these substances understood their power, and that progressed into the current day. And the current people who have emerged out of this have been, in, have been the underground individuals who are now working with the big academics and the other nonprofit organizations and whatever to bring it to light. So here's how it works. So the model is this. You meet with a therapist who has an understanding of what psychedelics do from a psychological process, from a, a brain and mind, a neurologic process, a brain and mind process. They get to understand your issues, what you're dealing with. It might be depression, might be PTSD, substance abuse, eating disorders, you name it. Um, then what you do is you undergo three structured therapeutic sessions with the therapist. So what happens is you get a dose. These doses have been determined on a research basis of maybe psilocybin, which comes from magic mushrooms. Uh, it might be MDMA, which is used for PTSD. We can talk about indications after it, but you take this, uh, you take the substance, you lie in a room and you undergo the psychedelic experience with the therapist in the room. So when you run into any kind of difficulty during that process, because what psychedelics do in a nutshell is they give you about, I'm going to be arbitrary here, you know, uh, three years of therapy in four to six hours. You just get a massive download of insights and you do this in one session and then you go, you talk to the therapist afterwards and then you do another session four to six weeks later and another session four to six weeks later. And then the most important part happens. This is the integration phase. Integration is a really, really, really important word here. You, so out of all the insights you've accumulated under your psychedelic experience, you then work with the, the therapist to understand what you experienced and then integrate that into your life. This is exactly what happens in a normal therapeutic process. The only difference is this takes years. It takes all the deep work you mentioned. It takes the commitment. It takes the fact that your life is stable, that you don't have a death from a, a, you know, a family member in the intervening period. You don't lose your job. You don't lose your partner. So you know, therapy is great. It just it takes a long, long time and a lot of work every single day to work at it. So what psychedelics do is they catalyze this experience for individuals and they can, get, they can springboard them out of that muck and get them up onto dry land where for a bit of time, they can, if they integrate that properly, then they stay on the dry land. If you don't integrate that properly, you fall back into the muck. And this is the problem where people go off and do big loads of mushrooms when you're a kid or when you're in your 20s and you do it somewhere in the woods with your buddies and you have these weird thoughts and everything. And then you bury them all and go back to work on Monday or you, or you have a big negative experience. You understand what happened. And this is the way they're not meant to be done. So that's what's really, really, really important that that process is so insignificant. Now, I'll give you some stat and then I'll kick it over to you to kind of pause for a moment, uh, Nikki, but MDMA, so this is ecstasy, right? Um, the, drug, the drug known as ecstasy. So MDMA is used to treat PTSD specifically, and there's some rationale under there. There has been multiple studies. It's currently in a big second phase three trial, means that these are the big studies that you need. Once this is completed, it will go on to be approval for actual therapy. Now, you take people who have significant, severe, treatment-resistant PTSD. We're talking soldiers who are over in Afghanistan, horrible situations, dealing with PTSD for years, multiple drugs, multiple therapy, failed. Other individuals with significant PTSD, past history of trauma, et cetera, et cetera. They go through this process without MDMA, 23% resolution. They pulled data. This is many individuals pulled out a 23% resolution of, of, of PTSD symptoms by about nine months to a year. 
You take the MDMA group, 56% double resolution of PTSD symptoms, and more than 80% of individuals have a significant improvement in their quality of life in the MDMA treatment group. This is huge. And the stats for depression and other and other things is, is unbelievable. You go and look at this data. Psychedelics for mental health will be the greatest innovation as it carries out if we progress through this properly, the greatest innovation in medicine in our time. So what about the health side effects taking this type of drug? So here you go, three sessions. This is not an everyday drug, number one, right? So again, we got to move out of the, the old, old model. This is not how they work. These are three sessions. This is why big pharma is not really that interested so much per se at this point in time in it, because what are they selling? They have nothing to sell, right? This is again, this is the counterbalance that you're getting in the mainstream of people saying that this doesn't work because it, it's weird. It's a weird model. That's one thing. So number two, you look at studies, multiple studies done. Look at the dependency. Okay, I can send, we can maybe do the show notes. I'll, I'll give you a nice curve, a nice graph that shows dependency rates. Sure. LSD, okay, which is a psychedelic, psilocybin, which comes from magic mushrooms, have the lowest dependency of all drugs. You look where alcohol is and you look where cigarettes are, way up higher. There's no dependency rate here because imagine you go and you do a, a big dose of LSD and you get all these insights about your childhood and your past and you have a perspective on yourself that you see and everything that's overwhelming those insights are massive that's not a drug you want to go and do again it's not a quote fun time when it's done in that way and that's why you see this it's not something that you can just do and go on the, the dependency rates for these are, are almost zero the safety parameters are amazing safety has been well established in the studies again we're in phase three trials for these medications so that means the safety has been done in phase one and two um, there's, there's, there's for LSE mushroom, for psilocybin, there's, um, minimal physical safety side effects. And there's, these are well kind of looked at, um, MDMA, you can run into issues if you're on other medications, okay. If you're on other serotonin type medications, you can run into some issues. So, you know, we know these, but relative to some of the other drugs that are available for mental health disease, disease, the significant, the safety parameters of these drugs are also significantly better. And non-addictive. It goes against what we know. Remember, Nikki, you and I grew up in a time where Richard Nixon started his war on drugs and Ronald Reagan continued it, and so did the rest of the world, because this was the counterculture. They were they were they're moving against the counterculture. There was a war in Vietnam that like that that they didn't want. There was a whole you know host of a hippie culture that was emerging that was that really ended up and you know took these things that were against the war in Vietnam. There's a lot of really interesting social, political, cultural history here you can read about. And and it's, I'm it's very familiar with what I studied it. I've yeah. got a master's degree in it. So I'm very familiar with what there happened. You go. Yeah. But here's the deal, right? Like, I mean, my concern with taking any drug is the physical and mental side effects of taking that drug. You know what I mean? That's why I don't drink alcohol. That's why I don't smoke. That's why I don't do uh, other drugs. I don't take pharmaceutical drugs. I mean, unless I absolutely have to, I just don't do it. Like, mm -hmm. I'm not one of these people who goes, oh, I got a headache. Let me go get a, an aspirin. That's not what I do. I look yeah. for natural alternatives and things that are actually physically healthy for my body. And, yeah. you know, like I said, I haven't done the research the way you have on the psychedelics, but I'm concerned about what would be the impact of even having just three treatments on a person's body, on a person's yeah. heart, on a person's brain. Mm. Well worked out. Nothing. Safe. For the most part. It's not nothing. We got to watch these things. There are there are some things, but that, you know, those are, are well known and far safer than and other things. And I, pre and I appreciate it. Look, in the end, if you can, if, if one can um, treat their mental health conditions without any substances, that's the ideal. But that's the ideal. People are significantly sick. We've got four out of five men committing suicide. We clearly do not have the capacity. Not four to out do of that. five men. You, what you said four was four out of five, men five suicides are committed by men. That'd be 80% of men, men killing themselves, which is no, no, totally men com Yeah, completing suicide if they're attempting suicide is what I meant, right? So so just looking at that, clearly, um, you know, what is in place right now, however much we would like people to move through these things, is that there are people with circumstances in their lives that it's it, 
they're they're might not they may not be capable therefore it's not from my perspective it's not fair to presume that those individuals are going to be okay without some help well look there are plenty of people who for example soldiers went to war they were wounded or they saw horrific things happen like people their friends being blown apart in front of their eyes little children being killed things like that and the the, the psychological impact of witnessing that or of being wounded, of being shot and losing an arm, losing a leg or losing two legs is hard on people. And, and I know through the work that David Vobora has done uh, with people in physical exercise, I believe that's powerful and that's important. But I also know that there's some of those folks who turn to heroin and, and other nasty, nasty drugs and, I can see that for some folks like that, this could definitely be a better alternative than taking heroin. hundred percent. It's just, as I said, for myself, I mean, I'd never want to do any of these things. I'd never want to take yeah, a psychedelic. Yeah. I'd never want to put myself in an altered headspace and I, yeah. I'd never want to take the physical risk to my body. I mean, if I want to get into an altered headspace, I, I, I want to do some, uh, some meditation or something like that, you know? Um, so what are you doing there? Close my eyes and I... You're altering your consciousness, right? Alter my consciousness, but I do it without the aid of something that's going to possibly have a physical side effect on me. Yeah, you're altering your consciousness. Uh, Yeah. Do you drink coffee? Don't drink coffee at all. So, look, I commend you for what you're doing. You are (laughs) probably the top 1% of the population. And as much as I'm hopeful that other people can do this, the truth is they can't. A lot of them are. Or at least right now they can't, right? And so, and you know, and 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 our current therapies that we have are not, um, you know, they're not doing they're not doing the job. They're not doing the job. Um, you know, when we have something that emerges like this, um, you know, which which when you look at the literature and what it does from a neurologic perspective, um, very interesting guy uh, who did this. Where you know he noticed Dr. Robin Carhart Harris's. Uh, work. Dr. Robin Carver Harris is one of the you know, most prominent psychedelic neuroscience researchers in the world. And another individual, I'm forgetting his name offhand right now, uh, from the US though, but he, he um, was looking at neurologic effects of meditation. And he noticed that from Dr. Carver Harris's work and his work, that the brain imaging, when you're on psilocybin, magic mushrooms, is exactly and very similar, not exactly, but very similar to the brain states of meditators. Mm. Yeah. Some people can't meditate to the degree that you're talking about as much as you want to try. They're not going to do it. They're too, they're, they're too busy trying to work to get food on the table. How are they going to get an hour per day to meditate? Right. Um, or I'm being extreme there, but I'm just giving you an example, right? Like that's, that's and anybody who's committed to doing anything can make it happen. That's my, that's my theory on it. If you I mean, even if you're working 20 hours a day, if you want to meditate, you'll find an hour to meditate. Yeah. Uh, I, I think people, people do the things that they want to do and they make excuses for why they don't do the things they don't want to do. And that's the truth. Yeah. And it's so very think- true for men today as well, which is one yeah. of the reasons we do this show is you want to say, stop bullshitting yourself, stop bullshitting everybody else and loading, giving, giving yourself and other people a load of bull, be honest and say, yeah, I'm going to commit to this or no, I'm not going to commit to this. And that's the right. truth of what we, what we want men to do. That's one of the reasons we created the sovereign man movement. We want to take men out of this beta male cucked reality that many of them are living in. We want to turn them into alpha males who are responsible, powerful, and creators of their own experience in their own life, good right. or bad. Yeah. And if you can own the bad that you do, as well as own the good that you do, then the fact that you own the bad that you do makes it easier for you to go, okay, I did this bad shit that I don't like and I don't like the results. So I'm going to undo it now and do something else. And that's, that to me is the power of being a man. And that's an issue I've struggled with myself. Even Mm -hmm. to this day, I struggle with this issue. You know, like I've got a, a, a group that I'm, that I lead and it's been a great group while I was sick uh, something happened and, you know, I was in my brain fog, but I got angry with one of the folks in the group and uh, it, it just caused a bad dynamic in the group, you know? Yeah. So I got to go and fix that. And we've got a meeting coming up and I'm going to, I'm going to take responsibility and say, look, I'm completely responsible for what happened. 
And here's how I'm responsible. Here's how I'm taking responsibility. And mm-hmm. I'm uh, I'm committed to you, men. I'm committed to this group. And you, you know, it, it, they'll accept what I have to say, or they won't. But either way, I'm responsible for what happened. Nobody else is responsible. Nobody else caused that. I did what I did. Now I'm going to do something different, and it's either going to get me the result that I'm looking for, or it's not. But I'm going to own that too. Either way, it's all on me. It's all up to me. And that's what I got to tell myself. And that's in this show. That's what we say to men. It's all on you. You own your freaking life. Now you need a band of brothers, which is why we've got the sovereign man movement. Why we've got people being in our sovereign circle program and in our battle ready program. You've got to have men hold your feet to the fire. All that's super, super important. hundred percent agree, but it all comes down to you owning yourself, owning your life and owning what you create. Period. Full stop. End of story. And I'm with you, and that's why I said, you know, earlier on, the umbrella of all this is responsibility. Um, you know, and 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 I love to, you know, and, and like you, Nikki, I, you know, I've I've done a lot of the work. Uh, you know, I've I've done serious meditation over time. I've done silent meditation retreats many, many times for long periods of time. I've done kind of, you know, the full gamut of inner work, and I continue to do it. Um, you know, and and I would love to project my drive and my experience in my life onto all those around me and presume that they can do it. Uh, but I guess my lens in, you know, having served, I would say 10,000 plus people, individuals over the course of the last many years um, who come from all different walks of life because everybody gets sick. Um, you know, m- my lens in one is realizing, and, and this is a big insight for myself, that the worst thing I can do is try to presume that others around me can do what I've done. I can try to lead them. I can try to empower them. I can attempt to provide them down the path that will go. But the truth is, come back to your muck metaphor. Some of those people are upside down in that muck with only their feet hanging out of that muck. And, and, and taking, quote, taking responsibility is not, it is something that starts from the very beginning, um, but is not so clear or to that individual right from the start. They're just not capable. They are not capable. And some people don't have a support structure and all those other things. And so it's, you know, and, and, and yeah, that's a far, that might be an extreme, but that that's a lot of people. And um, I'm one now, I don't presume that those people are going to do it on their own. And they're, and they're not. No, no, right? no one's going to do anything on their own. You can't do yeah. life on your own. This, this is yeah. it. We're social beings and we're social animals. You can't live in isolation. If the world ended and Evan Lewis was the only man left alive, mm-hmm. you wouldn't want to be around for too, too much longer because it would, it would, sure. it would not be a fun experience. And you'd probably start to develop some phobias and some mental health issues of your own, just being the last man left alive on the planet. So mm-hmm. I wholeheartedly agree with you. Sovereign man movements, all about don't do it alone. Find your men, be with your men, get help. And mm-hmm. as I said, there are situations like you you talked about, you know, soldiers who've been in war, who've lost limbs, who've seen horrible things, or other people who've gone through other traumas, you know, uh, victims of, of, of kidnapping or human trafficking who've, who've been abused and raped multiple times, things like that. Those aren't simple and easy to deal with. I can totally see that those situations, those people could use something like what, what you're talking about, and it could completely transform their life. They could be out of the hell that they've been in for a very, very long time. I can totally understand that. Just as I'm saying, personally, it's not the road that I'm, I'm going to go uh, go down. And I want to encourage everybody to look at taking responsibility for themselves first get all that stuff done. If you've done all that, if you've attempted that, you've got groups, you've got therapists and all that hasn't worked, then this is potentially a good alternative. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, that's good. I think we come to a point where, where we can agree to disagree on that fundamental issue right there. Listen, one of the reasons that I bring people like you on the show is I want a healthy debate. I want to back and forth. I'm going to learn certain things from from you, which I have today about the psychedelic space and whatnot, and some of the statistics you brought to me about what men are dealing with and why they're dealing with them. Those are very powerful. I like that. There's going to be things I'm going to I'm I'm going to learn from. There's going to be things that I'm going to listen to. Yeah, that's not for me, and that's all good. And the fact that we can have a healthy debate is what allows the people that are listening to this show to make up their own minds. Because I don't want them to be like little Nikki, uh, you you know, clones. 
I don't want them to be Dr. Evan Lewis clones. I want them to think for themselves. Part of what we say makes a man sovereign is he can't outsource his thinking. He's got to yeah. think for himself. It's very yeah. important that he do that. Yeah. 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 I like that. I like that. Um, you know, and, and I think there's two of me, there's me who knows what's good for me and what I like to do, but then there's me who doesn't have a clue what's good for anybody else. So I don't, I don't intersect those two. So, you know, by saying something like that's not for me, does not mean that it's not going to be for a whole host of other people, right. including, including, um, you know, someone who, you know, goes and does work and then fails and then has to find another alternative. Maybe, maybe things need to happen together. Maybe they need to have a medical approach first and then can then get to the work. Maybe that's just maybe, maybe, maybe. And so I'm very open to all possibilities. I'm not stuck on one possibility. And our brains actually, I'm going to get into neurology for a little bit here, are built in a way that if you believe too much of one thing, you will continue to do those things in all your experiences, no matter what, whether you know it or you don't know it. So it's very, very important to always be open. To openness is the number one thing that we should always do, um, you know, and, and that's where I come from. I think that's one of, you know, again, coming back to the lessons that I've learned from my patients. That is a, one of the biggest, biggest lessons to as, as many times as possible as I can to not inject my own beliefs into what I am I'm being presented with in every individual situation to be open to all possibilities. Well, you know, uh, there, 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 there's, there, there's a good point that you're making over there. And it's, it's also very true that there's people who are, you know, so hammered with PTSD that they're going to need a different approach than, for example, someone living life day to day, who's just stressed out. Right? right. So I totally understand that. All I'm saying is I don't want someone listening to this who's just living day to day and is stressed out. Maybe his girlfriend dumped him or his wife left him or whatever to go, okay, I'm going to go do psychedelics right away. You know what I mean? Let's not try anything else. Let's just go for that. I would hope that they would try some other things before they they went into an approach like that. I would want them to do something like that. And likewise, that's kind of been my message from the beginning that you can't do anything in isolation. It's the wholeness of the whole. So on on the flip side, I would never want somebody listening to this um, to being lost in their own stigma by seeing that egg fried on a pan every Saturday morning when they were trying to watch their cartoons saying that this is their brain scrambled up on drugs, that that's actually true. That I would love for them to be open to start to educate themselves about the actual information that's out there about all possibilities, about psychedelics, about antidepressants, anti-anxieties, about therapy, about meditation, right? About insights from philosophy uh, ancient philosophy, current philosophy. Um, you know, th- I, I want—I don't want anybody to eliminate anything. Um, we should think of, and that—and that's where I will not inject my own biases into what I want for everybody else. I—I I, I have, I think, I have some degree of what's good for me, but most of what I don't know, I still don't know. And I'm very, and that's why I'm open to all possibilities. I would never have been able to get to the place I am right now. In, for instance, I'll give you a very hard example. Um, of the success I've had in treating young children's epilepsy with cannabis, if I was mired in my stigma. And the first time I ever encountered that was when I was training, and this is a true story, we were at our um, end of the year uh, party with our mentors, all my mentors who I told in in epilepsy, some of the best epilepsy doctors in the world. And one of the uh, new graduates, we were in a party, we were all in a circle, the new graduate says the, the the head guy says what do you want to go what are you going to go off and do and and this person says well i want to go and 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 work with cannabis with kids with epilepsy you know what he said he's like oh you're going to be the marijuana doctor and everybody laughed at this person right going we can go and explore the statistics and how cannabis has helped so many kids with epilepsy now so this is what happens when you get mired and lost in your stigma and you're open to all possibilities well, like I said, you make a good point and you're a very thoughtful man. And I appreciate you uh, sharing that being a little bit more open is 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 probably something that all of us can benefit from. But I also, as I said, in, in certain respects, uh, you know, I don't think you should have your mind be too open either. I mean, there's certain things that that mm-hmm. I, I know I know freedom's better than tyranny and no one's going to ha- persuade me to be open minded that these tyrannical actions, for example, that governments are taking around the world, I should just be open-minded to that. Screw that. I'm not open to that at all. And and I never will be open to that. 
And, you know, you've got to have principles that you stand for, because if you don't stand for something, you're going to fall for anything. So there is uh, definitely a a relevance to having an open mind about certain things and certain situations and and what you just shared. You know, I learned something from that and I appreciate that and I respect that. But as I said, there's certain things, certain beliefs, certain principles, certain values. I'm not open to shifting them at all and I never will be. Yeah, so it's important to, to to not equate openness with with um, I guess open minded. Uh, you know, open minded has some connotations around it. Openness is a personality trait. There's big five personality traits. Openness is one of them. Yes. So you can be conscientious and open. That's a good con. That's a good. That's a very very good. Uh, you know, um, uh, two types of personalities that you can be strong in because you can be principled by being conscientious. All right. Yet you can still be open because therefore if you're too rigid in your principles and you're overly conscientious with low openness, now you become that, that tyrannical force that you're so concerned about. So you got to, it's the combination of these things. They interplay, everything interplays. And we know this, this is one of the greatest things you teach in meditation and kind of Eastern types of philosophies, right? is that it's not being the yin and it's not being the yang. It's walking that middle line and having one foot in one foot and one, one foot in the other. And that's why the yin yang symbol is beautiful. You've got white with a black circle and black with a white circle, meaning that these things, they come out of each other. So, you know, it's the blend of these. And I guess that's where it all kind of, you know, go to and say like, that's what I'm implying by being open to all possibilities is just listening and hearing. Yet you can still be principled in your action and your thought. Those, those again, um, as I said, that's a, that's, you make a really good point. And I've learned a yeah. lot from this conversation. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Evan Lewis, man, just, just really great conversation. Really enjoyed this discussion. I think my really? listeners are going to love this. This is a bit of a different discussion for us here on the show. So I think it's well, going to provoke some thought among uh, my listenership. And for that, I'm very, very grateful. Thank you. Thank you for being great. here with us today. Appreciate it as well, Nikki. Thanks so much for having yeah, me. And I love the, the, the conversation too. Yeah, you bet, man. God bless. Definitely come back. We should uh, we should definitely pick this up again in the future. That's good. All the best. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Man Podcast. If you're ready to take charge of your life and become the man you've always wanted to be, we invite you to join the movement at SovereignMan.ca.